evening and welcome to this edition of the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. Each and every Sunday we get together, we talk about the news of the week, the events of our often bizarre lives. We do so in an entertaining, informative, and unique fashion And we do so as well on 22 different radio stations throughout this formerly great nation of ours, including in New York and in Los Angeles. And when last we heard from my co-host, Leah Brandon, two weeks ago, she was literally leaving us with a prediction that we were heading for an economic collapse. Since that time, the stock market has had the worst two-week start in the history of the United States stock market. So thanks so much (laughs) for that, Leah Brandon. (laughs) I was was hoping you'd come back this week, so maybe we can correct that. But uh, welcome back, and uh, boy, did anything happen during your off week there in Alabama? Oh, yes, yes, it certainly did. Uh, You know, we had a beautiful national championship come our way <laughs> which of course in this since you've moved there is is almost routine now this is the fourth That's right fourth time your crimson tide have won the national title since you moved to alabama uh which by the way you moved there almost exactly when nick saban took over right so, so i did i think he came a, a few months before me all right so you're basically the lucky charm there in alabama <laughs> uh do people there realize speaking of luck i mean not that luck had that much to do with it although they they did they did pull off an amazing onside kick in the national championship game, which Nick Saban deserves a lot of credit for. Oh, sure. Uh, but you, to win that often, you need a little, at least a little bit of luck. But do people there realize how lucky they are to be riding this wave, this unprecedented in this modern era wave of this kind of a <laughs> dynasty, or that it is take it for granted? Uh, well, there's a little bit of both. Uh, I, I think that we have become complacent with winning. Uh, I'm not sure if it's complacent, but definitely if we lose one game, the world has ended. I mean, we're just not ready to lose at all at this point. Well, luckily for you, you don't really have to worry about that very often. I mean, there's there's never going to be, I shouldn't say never, but it's it's hard to imagine Anybody other than Alabama ever winning four national championships in a shorter period of time in this kind of era of parity uh, that has overtaken college football. It is extraordinary. And the university, the state, and obviously Nick Saban and the, many, and the players, they're deserving an awful lot of credit. You know, we often joke uh, on this program, Leah, that almost every story has a six degrees of John Ziegler um, element to it. I didn't even tell you about this. I didn't even realize there was a six degrees uh, of separation between uh, myself and the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide Championship. Uh, it's kind of a funny little story. Turns out, I, I learned after Alabama won the semifinals, that uh, Lane Kiffin's assistant, I guess the offensive analyst for okay. Alabama, a guy by the name of Eric Keesaw, mm-hmm. dated my wife pretty seriously in high school. Seriously? And, yeah, and he- but here's the funny part of it, okay? Now, this shows how old I am. Right now, there's a certain things that happen in life that indicate, wow, you're you're old, Zig, because uh, you're not thinking like a young man anymore. See, as a younger man, I might have been at least a little bit like concerned or maybe even a little jealous because I mean this guy is a very good-looking dude. He was the uh, star quarterback of the high school team when my my uh, wife dated him in high school. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, assistant for national championship team. He's moving back here to California to take a, uh, another job, and uh, uh, right, right. So, so, so a younger, a younger guy might be going, well, gee, I don't want, you know, this, I, I'm going to feel some hint of jealousy here. 
I'm so old, my lit- my literal only thought about this was, and she's shown me pictures of the two of them in high school, and she, I'm thinking, wow, this is so cool. I'm not going to have to worry about watching the national championship game because she'll be into it. <laughs> but, the, but the funny part about that was she wasn't. She didn't care. So even then I still had to, I had to basically, uh, you know, horse trade in order to watch the national championship game. So I thought at the very least her having dated. <laughs> she could see him on the sidelines. Right, right, exactly. But she didn't care. So, and, and based on the television ratings, a lot of people didn't care, care that much. The ratings were not very good. They weren't as bad as the semifinals, but, uh, uh, but they were not as good as they were last year. But anyway, congratulations to your Crimson Tide. Thank you. Um, I was happy. This was a great team. They were uh, in love with each other, and that made the difference. Well, I was happy for you. Although, you know, four times that might be enough. Maybe it might be time to let somebody else win. No. Nope. Um, <laughs> I know. That's not going to work there in Alabama. Um, my, you know, you do it, the show from Alabama. I do it from just outside of L.A. Since we're talking football, I do have to at least spend 45 seconds to a minute on the big news here in L.A. with regard to football this week. When you were not on the program last week, I made a prediction, which at this point looks like it was about 60% incorrect with regard to the NFL and Los Angeles. I had predicted that this was going to be too complex to go down the way that the conventional wisdom indicates that it would, which at the time was that we would get two teams here in L.A., probably the Chargers and the Rams, as it turns crazy. Well, as it turns out, we we did get the Rams, which was the the scenario I said was the only one that made any sense. Was it for it to be one team and for it to be the Rams? Anything else was too complex. Well, we ended up with this a bizarre scenario, which frankly I think it's so bizarre that it happened by accident, and they're just winging it. I really do believe. I mean, because I I've come to believe in incompetence over anything in life. And anything that doesn't make total sense, I presume it's happening by accident and they're going by the seat of their pants. And that's what I think happened with the NFL. But here's the bottom bottom line of all this. Uh, if the Rams are the only team to come to Los Angeles, it won't be a complete and total catastrophe because there's going to be too many people in too many powerful positions to make it at least seem as if it wasn't a catastrophe, to put the lipstick on the pig and make it seem like it worked, Um, even though it won't really work because Los Angeles— They cannot let this fail. Right, exactly. It's too big to fail. It is too big to fail. However, if the Chargers—and that's the rumor is going to happen this week. Who knows? But the the current rumor is that this week the Chargers will— basically label themselves second-class citizens by being the second team to come into Los Angeles. I mean, how stupid is this? If you're going to do this, you should have come at exactly the same time as the Rams, so it's not perceived as if you're the second class, right? I mean, you're not the, you're now making yourself the beta to the Rams alpha here if you're the Chargers. But if the Chargers join the Rams, it will be a catastrophe, all right? Total they can't ca- really support one team, exactly. much less two. Who, who is thinking about this? No, people, people who are living in a delusional world. These are clearly uh, bubble-bound billionaires who look at the world like liberals who have no concept of reality. The, the reality of this is that if the Chargers and the Rams are both playing three seasons— in the dilapidated Coliseum, sharing mm. it with USC, 
They mm. are not going to draw horseflies, especially the Chargers, because no one from San Diego is going to come up there because they're all pissed off as hell, and, oh, they, yeah. and they ought to be. Uh, the, the, people forget the Rams haven't been here for 21 years. Their, their fan base back 21 years ago was, was in their 50s and 60s to begin with. Their fans are either dead or, <laughs> or pissed off. Young or people moved. Are, or moved, right? Most, all the white people have moved here. They've been replaced by Hispanics. Or, like, they want, they're going to be showing up at the Coliseum expecting a soccer game. I mean, so, so <laughs> it, this, is, this has disaster, in my opinion, written all over it. Uh, of course, it's all about TV ratings. That's the most important thing, and that's what the NFL really covets. And it might help a little bit on TV ratings. I don't know. I, 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 have, I even have skepticism towards that. But, but if it is both the Chargers and the Rams, which is still looking like it might be, it is going to be hilarious to watch three years, three years before they get this super-duper new stadium, which, by the way, all they got is a couple of, of paintings of, and this whole thing is being drawn on, on based on that. I mean, it's it's, it's amazing to me. This smells <sighs> it smells like a catastrophe to me, mainly because no one will even speak the words that it might be a problem. <laughs> and, and so, whenever I get, whenever I feel Move that, forward with it. Right, whenever, whenever, whenever everyone's afraid to go, you know, maybe this might not work. When that's not even allowed to be said, my instincts automatically go. Look out. Look out. It's going to be a disaster. I mean, remember, this is a city, Los Angeles, that couldn't come close to selling out Super Bowl One. Exactly. Couldn't come close. The Rams were, were, were selling 30,000 seats in Anaheim when they left 21 years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this be a disaster. Um, so, all right. Um, we got a ton to get to on this program. We've got a very special guest later on in this hour. When we come back, we'll start with a very busy news week, and we'll go from there on the John and Leah Show on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network. Welcome back. This is the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is uh, Leah Brandon. One of the basic premises of this program is that we're living in a a world where we're leaving the gravitational pull of the rational Earth, or or may have already left it. Up is down, down is up, right is wrong, and wrong is right. Good is evil. Good is is good. There we go. I think we got the theme, and uh, that certainly was in the news this week with regard to Iran, which seemed to have the best week ever, Leah. Oh, yeah. It's been a very busy week between the U.S. and Iran. Twelve U.S. sailors on two vessels reportedly drifted into Iranian waters. Instead of Iran ordering the sailors out, they captured them, arrested them, and broadcast video of them handcuffed on their knees. One sailor even apologized on video. Secretary of State John Kerry thanked Iran for letting them go the next day and declared it a diplomatic win. Also, Iran reportedly has met all of its terms to pave the way for sanctions relief in that nuclear deal. Around $150 billion is going to the state sponsor of terror, and Iran has released American prisoners in exchange for seven Iranians. President Obama considers this a big win and today took a victory lap. I'm not playing it. (laughs) 
No one wants to hear it. All right, fair enough. Um, <laughs> I, that, that's fine. We didn't have much time for it anyway. Um, Good. Now, the, 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 there's so many different aspects to this, which we're not going to have time to get into. But the, to me, the big deal here is the, the bad guys keep winning. And yeah. we have no leverage because, we, you know, you referenced in the first segment how the NFL considers Los Angeles too big to fail. The Obama administration considers this Iranian deal too big to fail. And they know it. So they know they can do whatever they want. And the Obama administration is going to paper it over. Any Anything that looks bad, like obviously the sailor thing couldn't look any worse. Right. Because they can't let this thing fall apart. And they know this. They understand. They're not, to- they're not stupid. And, and, of course, this prisoner swap thing really mm. pisses me off because, of course— there's no indication our guys did anything wrong. Their guys are all terrorists. They're, they're all been charged, or or they're on the watch list. I mean, so how do how does that how's that remotely fair? How does that work? It doesn't matter. This is what he does. We always exchange really horrific people for you know normal citizens. It's what we do. And so they're going to get a boatload of money from us. They embarrass our soldiers. They get their prisoners back who are apparently real-life bad guys. And they kept one of ours. Is that right? They did. I missed that part. Yes, they say that they, quote, don't know where the uh, former FBI uh, agent is. Yeah, they they don't know where he is. I mean, and, and of course, the news media, as is always the case, whenever there's any doubt whatsoever, will always side with Obama and go, well, you know, it must be a good deal. And so let's move along. Let's move along. No outrage here. And mm-hmm. if anything, you know, if anything ever happens with those those seven that we gave up, we'll never hear about it. Uh, yep. it'll, it'll never be it'll, there'll never be any narrative creation based upon that. And he'll get away with it. And it's just so damn frustrating. And I got to tell you, it's it's the kind of thing that allows Donald Trump to be leading the GOP nomination process. It and is. It, and it's absolutely that type of thing. Now. Speaking of Iranians, in the next segment, uh, we're going to be joined by an Iranian, although not to talk about this. He's one of our favorite people, actually. He is. Uh, um, he's a guy by the name of Cyrus Nurasta. And the reason why we're going to speak to Cyrus, and it somewhat relates to this issue of, obviously, uh, uh, Middle East terrorism. And, and that is that this week, the Benghazi movie came out. And we know Cyrus Narasta from way back in our days at KFI because Cyrus was the creator of the greatest film ever made about 9-11, The Path to 9-11. It was uh, a great film. Which ABC aired for two nights back in uh, 2006. And the Clinton administration went bananas over it. The former Clinton administration went bananas over it, censored it. And there's a lot of similarities between 13 Hours, the Benghazi movie. Obviously, some people think it targets Hillary, um, much like uh, the path to 9-11 was misperceived as targeting Bill. And we're going to talk to Cyrus about uh, his thoughts on that movie, the relationship and the, the uh, interesting comparisons between the path to 9-11 and 13 Hours. And Cyrus has a brand new movie of his own coming out. That is going to be a huge hit in about two months. So you're going to want to hear about all of that. One of our very favorite people coming up next on the John and Leah Show. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. My name is John Ziegler. She's Leah Brandon. This is the Free Speech Broadcasting Network.
Welcome back. This is the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. And, and Leah, as you well know, we don't do guests very often on this program. No, we don't. They have to be special. Right. They have to sp- be special. And, and particularly, um, well, first of all, the first thing you have to, they have to do is say yes. That's that's one reason why we don't have a lot of guests. But the, so. ma- the main reason we don't have a lot of guests is because we have a very high standard, which is we have to both like and respect the uh, the people that we ask on and there's not it too pretty many much people. leaves everyone out <laughs> yeah so that, there's not that many people that fit into that category well our, our next guest does fit into that category uh because uh, he is somebody that we became very familiar with back in 2006 on kfi in los angeles when he created the the greatest movie ever made about 9-11 which was the path of 9-11 an abc docudrama which has a lot of similarities, I think, to what happened this week with regard to the movie 13 Hours, the movie about Benghazi. I'm referring to Cyrus Narasta. He's never appeared on this version of our program until now. Uh, Cyrus Narasta, welcome to the John and Leah Show. Hey, John. How's it going? Hi, Leah. Hi there, Cyrus. So glad you could join us tonight. Um, boy, it sounds like you're, you're, sounds like you're on the moon. <laughs> you, you, you still there, Cyrus? Apparently not. Wow. Boy, this is amazing. The, we've planned on this all week long. He's like He lives like 15 minutes from here. Are you, Cy, are you there? Let's, why don't we try to get Cyrus back on the phone on a line that actually sounds like he's on this planet. All right, so here's... This could be why we don't have guests very often. <laughs> this might be another reason why we don't have guests. All right. Um, wow. That was really awful. Uh, okay, so here's the bottom line. So you remember Path of 9-11, of course, uh, most well-known for this uh, remarkable uh, statement from from the uh, character Masood. Uh, remember that? Are there that? any men left in Washington, or are they all cowards? Right. Ah, yes. Right, we used to end our uh, KFI show in Los Angeles with that little bit. And the reason why there is a uh, connection here is because the Path of 9-11 was a docudrama, about 9-11. And shockingly, uh, Michael Bay has made a uh, docudrama about the Benghazi situation. Right. And the reality is that this movie is quite extraordinary. And I, I saw it on Friday. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I have questions about whether or not it will be politically uh, very viable because I don't think it really says very much about Hillary and about uh, the Obama's administration, but we'll we'll see what Cyrus has to say. So, Cyrus, are you back? Are you there? I'm here. All right, fantastic. Well, sorry about Thank that, you. buddy. Woof. Wow. All right. So um, let, let's let's start over again. So, so Cyrus, um, the reason I asked you to come on, and I appreciate you taking the time on a Sunday night, and we want to talk about your new movie, uh, which is coming out in a couple of months, called The Young Messiah. But uh, because of your history with the Path 9-11, I'm curious, how shocked were you that the 13-hour Benghazi movie ever got made to begin with? Well, I, I was shocked because I'd heard about a couple of people were trying to get it up and going, but they were the usual kind of uh, fringe independent players, and I didn't think they had a chance. And then all of a sudden it's announced that uh, Michael Bay is doing it. So then all of a sudden I felt, well, Michael Bay, you know, his last movie, uh, Transformers, I don't, I'm not sure if it was four or five, made multi-multi-million. So I figured, okay, they're going to let him do one for him now. So they gave him $50 million to make... Benghazi, and I'm glad they did. 
All right, now, when you had the controversy over the path to 9-11, which I ended up making a documentary about called Blocking the Path to 9-11, people can check that out. If you Google uh, streaming for uh, Blocking the Path to 9-11, you can see a free version of the film. Uh, One of the things that you and I discussed often was that this was basically going to kill this whole genre of movie, the the docudrama, uh, because of the fact that Inherent in the docudrama, you're always going to have to take some artistic liberties, and if somebody, especially on the left, has the media behind them and they can, they can pretend that you're being inaccurate, they can destroy you like the Clintons did in getting ABC to, to censor uh, huge chunks and important chunks of your docudrama and then never show it again as had been previously scheduled, uh, that the airing of the Path of 9-11 has never again occurred after that original airing back in 2006. So how is it that you think Michael Bay has been able to get away with doing this? Well, I think because they're selling it fundamentally as an action movie. I mean, the trailers are all action um, and they're trying to also frame it as a kind of heroic story about them getting these guys out. I mean, uh, you know, you saw the movie. I saw the movie. It's, it's focused more on the guys who get the remaining 30 Americans out and less on the tragedy of what happened to the ambassador and the other three guys who were killed. Mm. And so, what, what, give me your your thirty second synopsis on on the movie itself, and from a docudrama perspective, how would you evaluate it? Well, you know, I enjoyed the movie. I didn't love it. I was I found myself confused in in sort of key sections of it, and I found also there were like three of the of the main six guys all looked exactly alike. So I was confused as to which one died. So that whole emotional uh, moment was lost for me. Uh, I just found it uh, sections of it chaotic. I thought he pulled it together in the final 15 minutes, and I thought there was a kind of epilogue there at the end that was very powerful and emotional. And um, so I'd give it a, uh, I don't know, four out of five stars. <laughs> I thought it was more well done than that. In fact, I thought it, it had a lot of similarities cinematically to the to the path to 9/11. Although I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, Leah, do you have a question for Cyrus? Well, I haven't seen this film yet, uh, and when you say Benghazi, of course, one name, Hillary Clinton, comes to mind. So uh, I, my question is, so if you don't you know, have any idea going in to see this movie about the controversy of Benghazi and Hillary Clinton and basically how she lied about you know, what happened there, do you leave with the correct conclusion? Well, I think you leave with a level of frustration uh, that these guys didn't get the support. You hear them, and they they do comment a few times about where's our support, where's the air air cover, who's picking us up. And so you get that level of, gee, why aren't they getting any help? It's just no individuals like the president of the United States or the secretary of state are identified. Now, let's talk about that, uh, Cyrus, because to me I'm fascinated by how the the 13-hour movie, the movie about Benghazi, decided to promote itself, and and you and I have, have discussed all week about the the minefield that here we have a situation where you know obviously Hollywood is normally very leftist, and this film clearly is a hot button topic 
among Democrats because Hillary was the Secretary of State at the time. She's obviously running for president, the Democratic frontrunner. And this movie had to make a choice uh, as to who to appeal to, how to market itself. And they clearly chose to tease conservatives that, hey, come watch our movie. This is going to be a mainstream blockbuster film by Michael Bay. And, you know, we're not going to, you know, insult you conservatives. But we're also not going to make it too obvious that this is any sort of anti-Hillary movie or and we're going to try to hide the word Benghazi as much as we can in the in the promotions of this film. What do you make of the political decisions that were made by 13 Hours in their choices to promote the film the way that they did? Well, they, they covered it by saying that, oh, we want to focus on the heroes on the ground. Um, and I get that, but I also think that is just what I said, a cover. I think that mm-hmm. whenever you're getting into an election cycle, which we are in, it's, uh, you know, it's very touchy. And if you criticize uh, one side, um, especially a side that has the media sort of in its corner, they're going to object pretty loudly. So I think they wanted to target conservatives, but also try and sell it as an action movie. But, you know, maybe, I don't, I, I don't know. It's, uh, the verdict isn't in yet on how well the movie's doing. I think it's doing solid business. Uh, not spectacular, but I think it's doing very solid business. I guess maybe the second or third week we'll know more, but it's getting an A rating on, um, what do you call it, uh, that... Rotten Tomatoes? Or, yes, or on Rotten Tomatoes it's getting an, a, a pretty high rating, which means it may get a follow-up box office in the second and third weeks, and we'll know more. Well, well Cyrus, we're speaking with Cyrus Narasta, who uh, created uh, The Path 9-11 almost 10 years ago, on ABC docudrama. A lot of parallels between what's happening uh, with this week's big movie, the Benghazi movie, The 13 Hours, because obviously there's a Clinton connection to both. I'm curious, Cyrus, uh, your movie obviously being on television and this being a, a theater movie, I think it makes it a fundamentally different set of circumstances with regard to how much a company is going to be willing to endure and the nature of the controversy they're going to be willing to endure. Disney was not able to endure any kind of controversy, and the Democrats and and the Clintons were much more afraid of the path to 9-11 because this was something that could be seen by average Americans by accident because they didn't have to pay for it. Uh, The Benghazi movie is not nearly as threatening to the Clintons, and they have chosen to basically be kind of quiet about it because you have to pay to see it and they're banking on something which i think is true that only conservatives are going to go see it and so therefore it won't have much political power what do you make of that no i I think what you said is true i just i mean let's face it if you're a hit on television you're going to get far more viewers um i we had 28 million viewers on uh path to 9-11 over the course of those two nights. Imagine 28 million people went to see this movie. Right. It would be as big as, well, maybe Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. By the way, Hillary hasn't seen it, just so you know. Shocking. uh, All right. Uh, We're speaking with, uh, hang in there, Cyrus. We're speaking with Cyrus Narasta, one of our good friends from our old uh, KFI show, one of my best friends, and uh, a guy who's got a movie coming out that you've got to hear about, I promise you. We'll talk about that when we come back on the Free Speech Broadcasting Network.
Welcome back. This is the John and Leah Show. My name is John Ziegler. My co-host is Leah Brandon. Our uh, special guest for this segment is filmmaker Cyrus Narasta. One last uh, thought before we move on with uh, Cyrus uh, on the uh, movie 13 Hours, the Benghazi movie, because Leah just asked me about it. She has not yet seen the movie. Uh, There is no question that the movie does uh, two things very well, which is make the idea that a YouTube video would be the cause of the attack uh, is ridiculous, and the movie discards that completely. And it also, much like uh, Path to 9-11, makes no apologies for for whom the enemy really is. It really pulls no punches with regard to where the who the enemy is, what it believes, and and why they need to be eliminated. So Michael Bay deserves credit for that, and I hope the and I hope the movie does do well, uh, if only so that Hollywood realizes that this kind of movie can be profitable, which is really all it's all about. I mean, that's that's all that Hollywood will ever really respond to is what is profitable, what will be good for their careers, and what isn't they'll they'll always avoid what's bad for their careers now cyrus your career is about to take a a a massive turn in march because you have a brand new movie coming out which um is called the young messiah you you are keeping in in your history of taking on the very easy topics you know um, path to 9-11 the stoning of soraya m and the and the story of the story of jesus as a child which has never been told before so uh tell us tell us about the young messiah well the fact that it's never been told before is one of the reasons one of the exciting reasons to do it um but fundamentally it's it's a beautiful story based on a, a novel by Anne Rice uh, about Jesus as a seven-year-old boy coming to the full comprehension of, of who he is and, and, and what his mission is. Now, um, I've been friends with you for a long time, ever since Path to 9-11, and it seems as if uh, the, the movie, The Young Messiah, which is coming out in mid-March, uh, has basically been in the works since almost biblical times. Is that about right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, something like that. I mean, it, it opens March 11th, and we started work, uh, working on it in late 2010 uh, was when the, uh, we first uh, acquired the book uh, in partnership with 1492 Pictures and started uh, writing the script. So what is that, almost six years. So um, that's actually quick for Hollywood. Except for the except except for the fact that that at one point you thought the movie was dead. I mean, num- right. numerous t- times you thought the movie was dead. But one time, you you started shooting or almost started shooting in in Italy, and the whole thing got shut down, and you basically had a miracle happen, right. saving this film. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we started uh, in early 2013 in Italy, just like you said. But the guy who was sort of putting the pieces together turned out to be, well, his methods were unsound. <laughs> and so I like that. So what happened was we were we had to stop. And that's a that's a deadly thing to happen to any production. It really means you're done. You're through because we were also three million dollars had been spent. So we're three million in the hole. But, you know. You can't make a Jesus movie without having a resurrection, and this movie was resurrected. It sure was, and it, and thankfully so. I, I have seen not the final cut, but an earlier cut. It's it's spectacular. Uh, you know, to me, the the most amazing part of many elements of this movie, The Young Messiah, that people need to understand is this is something you have never seen before. Cyrus, we are 
as a society thirsting to be shown something we've never seen before. And here you have literally the the most well-known human in the history of humanity during a time period that no one has ever told his story before. That Jesus is a young child. How did you go about telling that story with that much gravity, knowing that no one has ever seen this before? Well, very carefully. I mean, I think that I think you you start with Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible, and try to make his character as a child consistent with that character. And basically, you try to tell a story where people are sort of introduced to the young Messiah and who he is and what he does and how he acts is very consistent with how he was during his ministry. Now, obviously, you deal with a character like Jesus. There's there are going to be people who are going to be itching to make sure you get it right. And there's all sorts of different controversies that are possible. Talk about all the things that, that you have done, both in making this film, The Young Messiah, and in your own life, to prepare you and this film for making sure that people are satisfied with your depiction of this young Jesus. Well, we had, we had a lot of uh, consultants, advisors, theologians, biblical scholars, people that we talked to who read earlier drafts of the script, and we would take what they had to say into consideration. Um, I wrote the script with uh, my wife, Betsy, who you know, and we wanted to remain faithful to the Bible and remain true to the character of Jesus. So as you consider, okay, how is he going to react to a situation in his childhood, we looked at what the Bible tells us and how he reacted in similar situations as an adult. Um, And that was the key. We also have in the story a few uh, miracles and I always felt that miracles when we, we always understood that miracles would be somewhat controversial but I felt it's how you do them in the movie that makes all the difference and I didn't use a lot of you know movie pyrotechnics or you know CGI or vis effects I just we just did it simply and honestly and I think people go with it and react to the movie on an emotional level. They connect with the characters. They connect with young Jesus and his parents and, and the difficulty of, of raising this very special child. It is a great movie. Uh, it is, I could not more highly recommend it. I think one of the more interesting elements uh, of this film is that it is from 1492, Christopher Columbus. I mean, this is a very, very big production. This is unlike some of the other things that, that you've been involved with. And, 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 and this is a subject matter It's kind of unusual for them to, t- to tackle. How did you get them to do it? Well, you know, it was actually kind of simple in, in the sense that I think Chris Columbus got it the minute he heard the log line. I think he latched on to just what you said earlier, John, which is, Boy, no one's ever done that. And he also connected with the idea of his parents and what they're facing with their child, you know. And so he thought that the parents will connect with it, the kids could connect with it. And Chris Columbus has a tremendous track record as a filmmaker. He's done a lot of stories uh, with children as the leads, most notably the first three Harry Potter movies. Mm -hmm. And he felt that... This was a, 
a story that families and kids could respond to and react to. He thought it had a lot of potential. I agree totally. It was a great decision on his part. Uh, Cyrus Narasta, the filmmaker behind The Young Messiah, coming out on March 11th. We'll talk to you again before the film comes out. People should check out the trailer at YouTube, over a million views. Cyrus, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, John. Thanks, Leah. Bye-bye. Thank you, Cyrus. Hour number two coming up next.